Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how technology, consumerism, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. This podcast is sponsored by HealthNext, the enterprise-class virtual care platform from Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Daniel Negrin, CIO of Boston Children's Hospital. Dan, thank you so much for setting aside the time, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Patty. It's a privilege being on here with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So, Dan, just to get started, would you like to tell us a little bit about Boston Children's and the patient populations that you serve? Sure. Well, Boston Children's is a storied organization. Uh, We've just celebrated our, oh gosh, I've lost track now. It's at least 125 years, uh, but that anniversary was a few years ago. We're we're an old organization, obviously based in Boston. We're the primary teaching facility for Harvard Medical School. And uh, as the name implies, we care for uh, predominantly children throughout our programs. I say predominantly because we do actually have a few adult programs that we've uh, got, and that tends to be for patients who've grown up with what used to be just childhood disorders, congenital heart problems, things uh, such as that. And uh, it's telling that nowadays uh, care has gotten so good that those patients are now in their adult years. So we, uh, we clearly serve the Boston and surrounding areas, but we're also a destination of sorts for families around the world who have especially challenging problems. So although we obviously uh, have primary care and, and sort of, quote, bread and butter, if you will, pediatrics, we also do serve uh, patients with really uh, difficult and challenging problems, ones for which uh, families are willing to travel literally from all over the world to come and seek care at our organization. It's a great place. I've been there for a long, long time. This is my 25th year at the organization, 20th as CIO, which when I look back sort of boggles my mind a bit as to how (laughs) that long a period of time has passed, but uh, it's gone quickly, that's for sure. I should probably point out uh, that I'm actually nearing the end of my tenure at Boston Children's. I'm heading to a new role up at Maine Health in uh, Portland, Maine. Really fantastic organization that serves as uh, one of the largest systems up in the northern, northeast region of the country. So excited about that change after such a long time at Boston Children's. Well, firstly, congratulations on the change and congratulations on completing 25 years. And that's uh, quite a testament to the organization and your contributions there. So all the very best uh, in your new role as well, Dan. Thank you so much, Patty. I really appreciate that. Excellent. So in this uh, podcast, we talk about digital health, digital transformation. And uh, what I'd love to explore with you is uh, what does digital health mean in the context of a children's hospital like Boston Children's? Can you maybe share with us uh, highlights of some of your uh, maybe two or three digital programs that are making a significant difference to your patient populations? Absolutely. 
Well, you know, the first challenge, and Patty, I'm sure you you know this uh, simply by the fact of your having chatted with so many individuals about uh, what digital means to them. That's the biggest challenge, I think, is just sort of defining it, because it really does mean so many things to many different people and organizations. We've always viewed digital as really uh, the transformation of healthcare as we know it today, in terms of making not just consumers, patients and, and their families, but also providers and clinicians within the hospital, making them feel as comfortable in interacting with the healthcare system as it is uh, for any of the other aspects of their lives uh, for which the, there's a digital role today. So, you know, when you think about ordering uh, products online, whether it be Amazon or anywhere else, when you think about ordering groceries, when you think about booking your next hair appointment, when you think about making reservations for a restaurant, all of those things are just so facile nowadays and, and literally in the palm of your hand through your, through your smartphone. Right. And so that's what we view digital as, as the transformation of healthcare to be able to achieve that level of ease of use and familiarity to, to people, whether that's uh, patients or our own staff. And so we've obviously been on this journey for some time. Uh, when I say obviously, obviously also COVID has accelerated many of these. But even pre-COVID, we were offering many things through our portals like many other organizations are. And that, you know, we viewed that as the beginning of the consumer-centric digital transformation. And that, those go back many years, obviously. In fact, we were one of the first organizations in the country as a pediatric organization to offer a, a personal health record accessible over the web to our families. That continued on, and, and over many years, we've offered things like online second opinions for families. As I mentioned, we, we tend to be a destination for difficult-to-solve uh, problems for our patients, and, and so we've offered those services as well in conjunction with uh, patients' primary care providers or local care providers to help augment them and give them our assessment of what's going on with uh, their child's care. Most recently, and again, similar to I'm sure many organizations, we really had a massive uh, increase in our telehealth adoption. Right. Uh, we went from anywhere from 20 or 30 visits a day to well over 2,000 a day. And I think important also is for some reason, and I, I do think we differ a bit from our peers, we've continued with that very high rate of adoption of telehealth, even uh, once things subsided a bit over the late summer and early fall with, with COVID. Clearly, it's, it's ramping up again now, but still we're seeing about 45% or so of our ambulatory encounters, our outpatient encounters, still being done virtually now. So I'm not entirely sure why we've still got that uh, volume, but again, with COVID ramping up now, we're, we're pleased that we've got that infrastructure in place and that our, our providers and, and patients both seem to have adopted well to it. Beyond that, we do do a lot of additional things as well. We tend to be a pretty forward-leaning organization. We're very bullish on innovation and sort of taking innovative steps in the digital and IT realms. So we're doing uh, things together with many uh, smaller startups. Tonic is a vendor that we've uh, recently started working with to enhance our ability to get information from our patients digitally in advance of their visits, whether virtual visits or in-person visits. 
So essentially substituting for that clipboard, not just for administrative or rudimentary data, but really specialty specific data for things that providers need to know in terms of interval changes or things that have occurred since the the patient's last visit. And then maybe one last example I'll use is around voice technologies. We're feeling that voice is going to play an important role in healthcare, whether in an inpatient setting or even in the, the patient's homes. So we were one of the first organizations in the country to build a uh, HIPAA-compliant Alexa skill, Amazon's platforms. We implemented a tool that uh, allows for families with patients who underwent cardiac surgery to be able to do follow-up together with us via voice, via the HIPAA-compliant Alexa skill that we built. And so that was something that we piloted late last year and that we continue to work with now. So just a small sampling. We've got many other examples, but we really do take uh, digital seriously and, and think it's where things are headed for healthcare. That's uh, very interesting and great background. Uh, I have talked to a couple of your uh, peers who are uh, uh, chief uh, information officers and chief technology officers in uh, other children's hospitals across the country. And I'm struck by the similarities, but also by the differences in the needs of their individual patient populations. And the one thing that, uh, the one thing that I didn't know about earlier and which uh, kind of struck me as something very unique to children's hospitals is that it's not just the child that is your audience. Your audience also includes their parents. So you're serving two different groups of individuals, one of whom is actually receiving the care, but the other one is very important and equally important stakeholder in care. And uh, how does that influence your choices when it comes to uh, adopting digital technologies? I absolutely think that plays an important role, Patty, and it's one of the unique aspects of pediatrics, obviously not unique to Boston Children's Hospital or any pediatric organization. We we always like to say that there's two patients, really. There's the child, but then there's the, the child's parents or caregivers, and that's your other patient. So it's absolutely something that adds interesting twists to many of our digital outreaches. For one, you know, for things like telehealth, in some instances, you're dealing with a parent who is not in the same location as the child, or, or potentially one parent is with the child, but the other parent is, right. is at work and, and they want to be looped in. So by default, we need to think about a telehealth platform that's able to loop in more than, than one individual on the patient side. And so that uh, adds an interesting uh, twist. There's also lots of other considerations around the privacy aspect for just basic things like, let's say we collect uh, cell phone numbers of, uh, of the patient or the family with which to communicate with them. If it's a teen patient and they may be arranging for care that is sensitive and that they don't want their parents to know about, for example, and which in some states in particular is their legal right to, We've got to think very, very heavily about, well, whose cell phone number is this that's in our system? And we need to be very careful around whom we communicate with and whom we don't. So just sort of basic things like that really do uh, add a lot of, of twist to this that, that make things all that much more challenging, but fun and interesting too as well. And you're in one of the big metro markets in the country, Boston. When you look at your patient populations 
and you look at the technology choices in front of you, especially, and you mentioned this uh, interesting tool, which is uh, you know like a digital clipboard kind of a tool, which is what you mentioned. When you start looking at tools and technologies like that, especially at the front end and digital front door, if, if you want to call it that, how do you go about assessing these tools? What do you look for that would be different from if you were looking at the same tool from the context of, uh, of a more conventional uh, health system? Again, because of the, uh, the type of patients we've got and some of the unique aspects of, of the care that we provide, I think it's extremely important for us and, and for similar types of organizations to have a multidisciplinary approach to assessing the, the options out there whether it's digital front door or frankly for any of these digital tools, to think that IT is going to be able to do this type of thing on its own is that's just not going to work. And it's not just the doctors either, I'd add, that we really do try and be as multidisciplinary as we can. So we include uh, lots of nurses in in our evaluations, social workers, translators, or rather interpreters, I should say, social workers, we try and include all of them in our assessment of new technologies that we're evaluating for possible implementation because they each they each have a perspective and a need when it comes to these tools. Obviously, it depends on the particular use case that we're talking about, but I think getting everyone's opinion is absolutely critical in making sure that, that we choose wisely when we do. The other thing that we at Boston Children's have always done is we like to, you know, I like to refer to it as try before we buy. We test a lot of things. We pilot a lot of things. We have an innovation and digital health accelerator program. And within that group, we really do try and partner with many, many organizations out there and try, do little proofs of concept, uh, trial runs, uh, pilot initiatives to see whether or not the technology is going to be able to scale and serve our needs. So I think between those things, getting lots of eyes and assessments of the technology, as well as you know doing a bit of a trial before scaling it, I think those are two important aspects of ways that we can be sure that the choices are going to work for us. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about how you harness uh, innovative technologies out there. And it sounds like this is a way for you to uh, try before you buy and manage the risks, uh, both the technology risks as well as the financial risks involved in uh, committing to some of these innovative programs and innovative technology solutions. Along those lines, we fully expect to have many of them fail, you know, at that pilot stage. Right. Okay. That's uh, almost intentional, I'd say, is if we're not failing at some of them, we're probably not extending our reach as broadly as we should. And I've heard some of my guests tell me that, uh, you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast and move on. So you're not lingering on uh, on something that's not going to work, but you're moving on to the next thing, which is more likely to work than reducing your risks and minimizing the financial impact of uh, these decisions as well. In that context, what is the role of enterprise IT, you know, specifically EHR systems? We've seen EHR systems evolve from what they were a few years ago to more of uh, digitally enabling platforms. So a lot of front-end, digital front-door kind of functionalities are now available with uh, your platforms like Epic and Cerner. When you look at those, firstly, what do you see as the central role of the EHR for an enterprise like yours? And how do you view them in the context of digital health innovations? 
Well, we absolutely see uh, REHR as sort of the core repository for our patient care. There's, there's really no other way around it. And I should say that we look to those, I should say, vendors, because we're still in a bit of a unique position at Boston Children's where we have uh, both Cerner as well as Epic. Uh, Epic primarily for our RevCycle and kind of back-end processes and Cerner for our clinician-facing functions. So we do look to those platforms first and foremost to see what offerings they have, because the last thing we want to do is, is start to layer additional vendors and additional technologies when our, our core vendors can accommodate our need. But assuming that, that the thing that we're after is not provided for by them, what we like to see the EHR serve as is that ultimate repository for interactions that might occur with that third-party digital tool. And we also like to see the data interaction with the digital tool be as easy and seamless as possible. And so by that, I mean, let's hope that the Cerner or Epic platform has exposed the data that's required by uh, APIs, by a mm-hmm. fire. Let's hope that the third-party vendor is utilizing those APIs and uh, can accommodate them. And in essence, sort of lay on top of the EHR in a way that makes it seamless for the provider. So as much as possible to integrate into the workflows that are part and parcel of the the EHR platform. So again, thinking about smart on fire kinds of applications. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you touched upon something that obviously is uh, central to making this entire ecosystem of applications work seamlessly, which is uh, the notion of integration, interoperability, if you will. And we've come a long way in the last few years. It used to be uh, that uh, there was a lot of uh, frustration maybe a few years ago about the lack of interoperability, but we've come quite a way since then. I still hear, though, that it is a, it is a challenge. And so from that standpoint, and you mentioned early on that uh, you know, you've seen your telehealth visits go up significantly since the pandemic. And I've talked to health systems where they've had to put in telehealth platforms at short notice because they really didn't have a telehealth program. And now they're seeing that they're not well integrated with the backend EHR systems, and they're having to go back and revisit their choices. What has been your experience with regards to the interoperability challenges and the technology choices that you've made? And what's your advice for your peers out there who are facing these issues? Yeah, this is challenging because in theory, the API push that's occurred should have solved many of these problems, right? We should have uh, data liquidity everywhere. It's now mandated, you know, in 21st century cures and so on. But as we all know, the reality is that it's, it's really, we're only just starting. We've only got uh, certain data elements that are exposed by the vendors. And we have many instances in which we've really tried to just say, no, we're only going to use fire. We're only going to take advantage of these interoperable features that, that have been added. And yet we inevitably will end up recognizing that we need some data element or some aspect of the core system that's not yet available. And so we need to revert to things like HL7 and so on. So it's, I think it's still a work in progress I'm encouraged by the forward steps that we've continued to see the, the vendors make, as well as the, the third-party vendors and startup companies that are building upon those. 
so I, I'm encouraged and think that we'll eventually get there. But for now, I think we're still in this sort of middle ground place where we've still got to rely a little bit on our tried and true old interfaces and previous approaches that, uh, that we took. The one other thing that we've taken quite a bit of an advantage of is after a lot of investment over many years is to establish an enterprise-wide uh, data warehouse that we, we still put the vast majority of all of our data into, and not just our clinical EHR data, but lots of other additional data, social determinant of, of health kinds right. of data, administrative data. And in many instances, we find that we you know, run things, whether analytic kinds of tools or other sort of AI-based kinds of efforts, those are all run off of that enterprise data warehouse, which, you know, we've developed a data dictionary for. So I, I still think there's a, a purpose for that kind of thing within our organizations. And that's also helped us quite a bit as we thought about uh, some of these emerging tools and as we've tried some of them as well. So are you looking to use an enterprise data warehouse now as the uh, single source of truth, if you will, for applications that want to integrate into your system through an we API do. interface? We absolutely use a, a source of truth. What I'll say, though, is we tend to try and avoid using it for operations, for, for real-time kinds of uh, purposes, but absolutely for analytics kinds of efforts for machine learning efforts where we want to train new algorithms and so on, we are absolutely looking to our warehouse for those kinds of feeds. Very interesting, very interesting. So, you know, I want to go back to the question of startups and harnessing the innovation ecosystem out there. If you had to give them advice, if they want to come in and be a part of your journey at Boston Children's, would you tell them first and foremost to have a, a smart on fire kind of an application that, integrate seamlessly with the EHR system. If so, what else would you tell them if they want to start working with you? What is your advice to them? I absolutely do think that that's, uh, that gets them a good foot in the door, you know, in our shop, being one of the, uh, the places in the country that helped to establish Smart on Fire and really push for it. That definitely endears themselves in our eyes if they come in with that uh, out of the gate. But what I'd say beyond that is, they need to have a grounded background in terms of what the clinical problem is that they're trying to solve. One thing that we detest, and that's a strong word, but I mean it, is when we're approached by vendors who have a, an interesting technology or technological approach to something, but they've given no thought or have no background in the real challenges that face our clinical care teams as they take care of our patients. And so, having either someone on their teams themselves, or if not, perhaps having spoken with organizations to get that real world feedback. Is this something that's really going to help our clinical providers? And is it going to work in a clinical setting? Those are elements that they've had to have thought about ahead of time and that their products have to address well. Because if there's one thing that irks me is, is technology for technology's sake. I don't like just putting in a shiny new object because it's an interesting new technology. It's got to be clear what clinical problem it's solving. They need to have tailored their product with that in mind. Now, that all of that said, I will absolutely say that I subscribe to 
you know, the, the classic Steve Jobs idea, which is uh, the, the consumer doesn't know what they need or what they want. And in some cases, I will say that there's opportunity for that in healthcare, where we need to have our eyes opened to new ways of doing things, to new approaches that we haven't really ever considered before, simply because we've never done it that way. I do think, you know, having said everything that I just said about knowing the, the clinical environment and, and accommodating that, I do think that there's a place in some instances where a new disruptive approach would and could work. And so we're open to that at the same time. That's great advice, Dan. And I've, I've heard uh, many of your peers say the same thing, that technology for technology's sake is really not going to cut it. And uh, startups who listen to my podcast, uh, they take note of these comments, by the way. And, and I think uh, this message is coming through very consistently to startups from the uh, from CIOs and others who are, who are looking at evaluating these solutions. So let me switch back to the digital transformation program at Boston Children's. Can you share a little bit with us about how you govern your digital programs in terms of the org structure? How do you, do you have a separate budget for it? How do you prioritize the initiatives? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Great question, Patty. Yeah. So first and foremost, I should say that this is uh, this meaning our digital initiative has been marked as an enterprise-wide strategic goal and has been for the last several years now. So this is not just an IT goal. This is not a, a CIO sort of dream. This is a top-level enterprise-level strategic goal, and I think that's incredibly important because. Many of these digital transformations are disruptive for organizations. It will lead to new ways of doing things, uh, pushing our, our providers to uh, care for patients in ways that they've not before. And so without that top-level leadership being on board and willing to push in some instances, I think you won't be nearly as successful as if you, if you do have that support. So that's first and foremost. With respect to the financing, to underscore the importance of, of this and, and the fact that it's been, a, been marked as a strategic goal, the organization has set aside strategic level funds to support our digital sets of initiatives to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I won't say the exact amount, but tens of millions of dollars over a multi-year period so that we don't sell ourselves short. Because I, I appreciate that Many organizations have, have tried to do this, but have, you know, said, well, just do it using your existing budgets. And I don't think that's going to work. I think to do this properly, you really do need to make an investment in it with dedicated resources and a big push from an organizational perspective. So that's the money and that's the top level goals. With respect to the who, this is clearly one of my top-level goals and strategies from the IT and, and the CIO perspective. But we've got an interesting organizational structure at Boston Children's where we, where we also have a chief innovation officer. I affectionately refer to him as the other CIO, and we're friends, so we can joke around with one another. But we really are locked arm-in-arm arm on this uh, set of initiatives. In addition, uh, we've got a chief digital transformation officer, and she's uh, been a critical part of this digital set of efforts as well. And so we all partner together, and we each have got our respective teams. We try and ensure that we're going fast, and this is primarily the part that our chief innovation officer is overseeing. He oversees the digital 
health accelerator that I mentioned before. So this is where we're really piloting and evaluating lots of potential new opportunities. But we work together to say, okay, John, that's our chief innovation officer's name, John Brownstein. John, what are the kinds of things that you think we should be testing? And he tells me his list. And then he turns to Gene Mixer, the chief digital transformation officer and myself to say, okay, well, what will work well within our organizational IT infrastructures? Because the last thing we want to do is try a new digital approach, new potential tool, only to find that it's going to be a horrific fit for the rest of our IT infrastructures and would be something that we couldn't ever support moving forward. So we like to work together and talk a lot together, even in those initial piloting phases, to make sure that what's being evaluated initially by that digital health accelerator is something that could eventually scale if those initial pilot units or pilot efforts are successful. Because then we're going to have a handoff from the digital health accelerator over to the production IT department that I oversee, and it will become that group's job to continue to nurture and support that tool and expand it to the the rest of the organization. So there's a lot of collaboration and partnership between teams, and I think that's incredibly important. You cannot sort of spin off a digital effort under a chief digital or, you know, whatever title you want to call it, and have them go off independently and hope that that's going to yield a result that will eventually work well for your organization. You've got to collaborate and collaborate early. Fascinating. One quick question on that. Is it fair to say that whatever technology decisions you're making today, especially in the context of digital health, they are out of the gate. They are meant to be eventually enterprise-level decisions and not you know, departmental or one-off kind of decisions. Do you keep that as, a, as an end in mind, even as you start your early stage evaluations with some of these uh, solutions? We definitely do, Patty. That's not to say that there are not some ideas and proposals for things that are centered around one particular group, but we like to evaluate them and think about them with an eye towards, well, who else or what other programs might this be applicable and useful to? Because we don't want to have 20 different small-scale initiatives or small-scale technologies that are going to serve the needs of, of many individual groups. I'd rather deploy five, but that each of which could be applicable across multiple specialties and multiple areas within the organization. We're uh, coming up to the end of our time here, Dan, and uh, I want to ask you one last question. Now, you've obviously gone through a tremendous journey, and uh, from all of the examples that you've shared with us, it's been, uh, it's been really uh, very eye-opening, at least for me. If, uh, based on all of this experience, if you had one best practice that you would like to share with your peers in the industry, what would that be? I think, Patty, I've alluded to it already a little bit, and this probably goes back to my background as a clinician. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, and, and uh, up until this transition to main health that I'll be taking, I've still been clinically active over, over these years. So I'm a clinician at heart. I think the advice is that the technology leaders absolutely need to partner closely with the clinical side of the house. I've seen so many times initiatives that we ourselves have worked on that were not successful. 
And the reason was that we did not partner as closely as we needed to with the clinicians who were ultimately going to be using or at least taking advantage of the, the technologies that we put in place. And so making that collaborative effort, whether it's together with your CMIO, your CNIO, or whomever the, the clinical areas are, make that connection early, make them co-lead initiatives with you, if not lead it absolutely on their own. These need to be led by the folks that are ultimately going to get the benefit out of them. And I think when those things are attended to and attended to early in the process, inevitably I found that the end result is more accepted and more successful overall. So I guess that's my one best practice that I encourage everyone to, to remember. Fantastic. In fact, that's a great note to end this podcast discussion with Dan. Thank you so much for uh, setting aside the time once again. And thank you for the fascinating conversation. And once again, all the very best to you in your new role. Thanks so much, Patty. I really appreciate the opportunity for chatting a bit today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions.